is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. You got into business to pursue your passion, not to worry about insurance. But the reality is every business faces risks and you need to make sure that your business is protected. Insurance doesn't have to be complicated and learning some basic risk mitigation principles like how to develop a business continuity plan can go a long way. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools. Visit sovereigninsurance.ca to learn more. I landed a contract in Italy, but I need five freelancers to make it happen. I said, sure, let's chat over coffee. With Export Development Canada, risk doesn't stop you. EDC, take on the world. You're listening to The Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. On the Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality even faster. This podcast is presented in partnership with Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to the Thrive community. And subscribe to listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. Finally, we'd love for you to rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes for the chance to have it read on air. We want these shows to impact as many people as possible, and your reviews will help us get there. I'm your host, Gomal Minhas, founder of CoreSpace, your one-stop shop for all things work, wellness, and impact. Visit kaur.space to find out more. I'm also the producer of Dream Girl, the documentary film showcasing the lives of inspiring and ambitious female entrepreneurs that we premiered at the Obama White House. I'm so happy to be here today. Welcome to the show. On today's show, we are here with Dr. Helen Afosu. Dr. Helen Afosu has been practicing industrial and organizational psychology, or work in business psychology, in the public and private sectors for almost 20 years. Helen's specialties include career coaching for professionals, the assessment and development of leadership skills, and navigating the complex issues of workplace bullying, harassment, diversity, and inclusion. Prior to starting her consulting practice in 2012, Dr. Afosu worked for the Federal Public Service at Global Affairs Canada, the Department of National Defense, and the Public Service Commission. She has developed online screening tests, structured interviews, role plays, and simulations for evaluating job applicants' skills and behaviors as part of the hiring and promotion process. Helen's work has been recognized with three national awards, including the Head of Public Service Award. Wow. Helen leverages her more than 20,000 hours of professional experience to help individuals improve their careers. Her work and insights have been featured in Globe and Mail's Report on Globe Careers, Yahoo Canada, and Export Development Canada publications. Welcome to the show, Dr. Helen. 
Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to have you with us here today. I think that your expertise and your background is going to be invaluable uh, for with the insights you're going to share for our audience. So let's just get into it. My All right. Very, my very first question for you is about how your career started. So you started primarily in the public sector. How did you transition into this field that you are in? Well, that's a great question, and I'll probably admit that I probably was not a natural fit for the public service, but okay. when I was graduating from university, I was offered a job with a really attractive starting salary, and I knew that it would be a good place to start and start to build some experience, and I had initially, I expected to stay maybe two or three years and then consider something in the private sector that probably felt like a better a better fit. But by that point, I had an adorable little boy and a rocky marriage. So I thought that probably wasn't the best time to create more instability. <laughs> exactly. So I ended up staying much longer. But in the end, I ended up getting some terrific experience. And then when the stars aligned in 2011, 2012, I started making plans to make that leap into the private sector. And I figured I would give it my absolute best shot. And if it just didn't work, I guess I could go back to the government. But that was six years ago. So thank goodness, knock on wood, it's going well. Oh, wow. So when you were in the public service, were you working on this business on the side, on this transition on the side? I did. I did have a side hustle for probably, I'm going to say about eight to 10 months before I finally moved on. In retrospect, I wish I had had a longer runway. I wish I'd had even one or two years to really do more before launching myself. I think it would have been better if I had had uh, a better network that was outside of the public service. And I kind of wish I had better things in place in terms of my social media and a bigger community online. Those two things would have been better. Had I, If I were doing it over again, I certainly would do it that way. And so for those of our listeners who are in, say, a nine-to-five and are looking to transition – would you offer that as a piece of advice to take your time? I would. I know there are lots of business coaches out there that don't really like the side hustles. But in my opinion, especially for women who may have other big responsibilities like children or other things, it does make sense to kind of dip your toes in the water, so to speak, and put some things in place, make sure you like it, make sure you have some way of confirming that it should be viable before you give up your security in a full-time job. Absolutely. So when it came to the specialization in obviously your practice and, and you are a doctor, you are a organizational psychologist, you, this is something that you studied prior to entering the public service? That is correct. And when you were making that transition, were you at all intimidated or worried about going from being within an organization to working one-on-one -on -one with individuals? Well, I think my bigger worry was being able to sustain a certain level of income rather than my ability to provide a good service. Because even when I was in the public service, I had lots of times when I was doing the same things 
as an employee that I'm still doing now as as an entrepreneur. So so it was more a matter of figuring out the business development, figuring out the marketing and doing a different kind of networking. Those were the big differences between in my case anyways from being an employee versus an entrepreneur. Okay. And so in making that transition, were there resources that you leaned on hard to support you in the business development side and in the day-to-day operation side of things with your business? I would say that one of the biggest things that I lent on, lent on, or is that the word, lent? Yeah. Leaned, leaned on. on. Leaned on. <laughs> I guess I am a little tired. One of the things that I leaned on a lot was uh, a business network that I joined in those early, early few years of having my practice. I would actually say that I probably earned a street MBA from those uh <laughs> So how it worked was I was with a group of other self-employed people, small business owners, and I learned a lot about business development and, you know, some of the nitty gritty of how one manages their own business rather than having work coming to me as an employee. So that was the biggest piece. And I think I also learned about social media from that group. Wonderful. I love that concept of the street MBA. I feel like that's what I'm in the process of acquiring myself right now. Yeah, valuable. (laughs) And that network of people around you to really lift you up. It's something that I've also found invaluable in, in my experience with business. How did you go about finding that community of people? Well, interestingly enough, um, one of the things that I did early on when I was starting my practice was I started connecting with different groups of people to, you know, just meet different people and see different ways of doing things. And I was at a political event, actually, where I met a member of this business network and he invited me and that's really how it started. So by serendipity and happenstance. Absolutely. Right place, right time. I love that. So, Right place, right time. Exactly. Diving into a bit of uh, what, your, like, what your zone of genius is in the world, how do women know if entrepreneurship and starting up their own business might be the right choice for them? What are some things you've seen in terms of characteristics or um, personality traits that lend itself really well to entrepreneurship? Well, this is something that I've learned the hard way up close and personal and also through research. And I think one important quality is that entrepreneurs should be willing and able to figure certain things out on their own. Because for most of us in those early days, you just don't have the means to subcontract everything that you're not great at. So that means that you're probably going to have to do a little bit of everything in the early days. And unless you've been around business yourself, that means you're probably going to have to learn some things. So that's a big one. Another one is resilience, and that's being able to bounce back from the inevitable uh, setbacks and bumps on the road. And that one, in my opinion, is so important that I've actually used it as part of my tagline, building resilient careers and organizations. And uh, I think above and beyond that, people need to have initiative. You're not going to have somebody telling you what to do or how to do it or when to do it. So you need to set your agenda and you need to keep at it. You need that initiative and that hard work ethic. Thank you. And when, yeah. when our audience is thinking about 
what the services that you offer and the role of a career psychologist and, and the role that you could have in their careers and lives, when is a good time for someone to consider in their entrepreneurial journey um, seeking out someone with your expertise uh, to support them in their day-to-day? Well, I think there's no harm in reaching out in the early days because I'm not somebody who pressures anybody into working with me. So so it's a very, um, very easy, low-risk thing to just reach out and see where I can help. All of us as business owners or professionals could use some help in some respects uh, in terms of things like becoming better leaders and having better insights where our strengths are and where our weaknesses or blind spots are. So that's something that anybody could benefit from. But then on the HR side, certainly anybody who's in a position where they may need to grow a team in those early years when you don't have a very big team, each person who you add to your team can have a big impact. And it's best if you grow in a way where everyone you add adds value rather than having to go backwards and letting certain people go. It's too disruptive and it's too expensive. So those are two areas where I could certainly help. And in regards to when a person is ready to dive headfirst into entrepreneurship and business, what do we need to be aware of psychologically from a psychological perspective when we are about to take that leap? Well, I think um, two things that come to mind are that it's probably harder than it looks. <laughs> so, and I don't True. say that to discourage anybody. I, I really don't mean to discourage anybody, but you know, there's, there's that reality aspect of knowing that it's going to take, it may take more effort than you think. And it's probably smart to give yourself a longer runway than you think you need. So that's part of it. And I also think it's smart to have some financial resources in place, ideally some savings and some access to credit. And uh, I also think that having some kind of support network, friends, family, and ideally even some other people who are in that entrepreneurship space, because people who aren't in that space don't really share that reality and may get tired of hearing about some of the nitty gritty of what you're going through. So those are those are three things that I think are important in those early days. Wonderful. And in terms of your passion for this specific area of work, what inspired you to get to to choose this line of work? Well, I figured it made sense for me to work to my strengths instead of working around my weaknesses. So by focusing on what I had gotten good at in terms of helping individuals, mostly professionals and people with high potential, uh, develop plans that help their careers, that was definitely one big piece of it because I'd been doing that kind of work in terms of succession planning and career development in the private, in the public sector. But the other thing that I'd gotten really good at was helping hiring managers and organizations tell the difference between people who can actually deliver on the job and people who are really good at saying the right things during an interview. Wow. Right? Because most professionals are pretty good at knowing what to say. If you're already a lawyer or an economist or a financial planner or any number of things, 
you've been trained. You you understand what to say. You understand what should be expected. So it's pretty easy to check those boxes during an interview. But anyone who's worked anywhere knows that even if people have the same credentials on paper and the same number of years of experience, sometimes there's a really big difference between how well somebody can perform on the job. So that, uh, that assessment of those competencies and those behaviors, that's my real sweet spot. And for up-and-coming entrepreneurs, because as you know, like when you're starting out, it's you. Mm-hmm. You're doing multiple things at the beginning. You're wearing multiple hats and you're looking to hire your first few people. And Mm -hmm. a mistake that I made out of the gate was projecting my skill set onto potential hires because obviously Mm -hmm. those are the hats I'm wearing. I'm transitioning those hats over. So what red flags or um, things should should we be aware of when we're starting hiring for the first time, managing for the first time and seeing this person and saying, you're saying all the right things, but how do I how do I sort through this if I'm not able to work with a career psychologist? Well, I think thing number one is to slow down and take more time when you're hiring. Mm. And I know that's counterintuitive because most entrepreneurs are in a hurry. We have limited time. And we just want to get it done. Problem is that when you hire somebody, that's a big commitment and that's going to make a big impact on your organization. I remember uh, one client that I worked with who she's in professional services. So, of course, the people she needed to hire needed to be great performers. And she'd had some hiccups in the past where she'd hired people who looked great but weren't. So I wanted to do a great job for her, but it was an ongoing issue of speed versus quality. And it made me remember the fact that when people are shopping for a car, they'll often invest some time in thinking about what they want and some test driving, all kinds of stuff. They don't get it done in an hour or two from start to finish. And that car purchase is a lot smaller than most salaries are going to be, especially if the person sticks around for a few years. So definitely slow down. And uh, the other thing, it's, it's tough to crystallize and consolidate my process in terms of what to do when hiring if you don't want to talk to anybody about it. But certainly I do offer free consultations with no obligations. I could give a few pointers there. And I've got a lot of content on my blog that gives some ideas about some do's and don'ts and some best practices. And I've got like 160 blog articles. So definitely that's a good resource if someone doesn't want to connect. But um, I'm always happy to help, help entrepreneurs. So a quick phone call could at least point people in the right direction. Absolutely. And when, as a business owner, entrepreneur, if you were to like, what's, what is the value of having someone on demand uh, available to their staff uh, to talk through career challenges and different things like that? How have you seen your work uh, amplify a team and uplift a team? Well, I love the fact that when organizations have limited funds, they don't need to spend more money than they should be spending if they just get help on demand. And right now, I actually have access to this tremendous app that has been making life a lot easier for clients and even for myself. So fundamentally, the on-demand piece just means that 
instead of, say, buying a car, I'm going back to the car analogy, if you only need the car one or two days a week, then you could probably get by with Uber. So in the same sense, instead of hiring somebody to be part of your full-time team, working with someone like me who can help you when you need help, it's a lot more cost-effective. And back to this app, um, it's, I love the fact that it's a mobile app. So, What is the app? It's called Magnify. Okay. And it's available for iOS and for Android. And it's basically like doing a FaceTime or Skype call. I give away a free fixed number of minutes at the beginning. But then after an initial call, people pay per minute. Mm. So it's an easy way to answer quick questions without a very elaborate long-term contract or anything in place. That's so wonderful and innovative yeah. because when mm-hmm. I'm thinking even about my own challenges with my company, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of trying to implement or bring in a career psychologist for my team. I, I work with a coach myself and I know the value of having someone there to talk through all of the hard stuff about work and about organizations. Mm-hmm. But even me with that experience, I still find it difficult to think of how can we implement this, but Magnify sounds like a great solution in that sense. It's a great way to deal with things that are quick or time sensitive. But of course, the bulk of my clients are people who I'm spending some time with over time rather than just five or 10 minutes at a time. But certainly having both options is really convenient. So having gone through it firsthand, and we chatted a little bit about this, but I want to throw it uh, to the audience a little bit more. When transitioning from being an employee to an entrepreneur uh, to being out there on your own, what do we need to be thoughtful of in terms of what that transition is like for us personally and psychologically? Well, I think one of the big things is that when you're an employee, Obviously, you're going to have a lot more stability in terms of your cash flow and your income, but you're also going to have more structure in terms of what you need to do because odds are, whether it's a quarterly basis or a monthly basis or a weekly basis, you kind of get your marching orders. You're not creating those marching orders yourself. And I came across a fascinating article some months ago that talks about the emotional toll of entrepreneurship because it can be an isolating experience if, you, if you're working a lot on your own and if finances are constrained, you may not be doing as much socially as you used to. You may be trying to do a lot more with fewer resources than you're used to. And then, of course, there's the, the, the stress and the anxiety of uncertainty and the ups and downs. So all of that can be difficult emotionally. And so it's, it's smart to have some, some people who you can trust and talk to so that, you know, it's less isolating and so that you don't, uh, you don't fall into those dark places. Thank you for that. I find that the conversations around mental health and entrepreneurship are coming up a little bit more and more, but are critically important because this work can be really isolating. I don't know if you've found that with the more, the more entrepreneurial clients that you've worked with, but what are some tools and tactics that you'd suggest uh, or supports you'd suggest for individuals who are maybe having a tough time with their entrepreneurial journeys? Well, I think that talking with people who are on a similar path, 
or at least people who understand what it's like to be self-employed or become an entrepreneur, that's helpful because when you talk to other people, you see that your situation is not that different. Those early days are rarely a walk in the park for anybody. I remember one person saying to me, yeah, you know, every day isn't Christmas when you're an entrepreneur. And that's a great saying because, yes, there are some great times, but there are lots of days where it's mundane and it's long days and it's hard. And sometimes there's discouragement and disappointment. So I think building that community and celebrating the good things that happen along the way, um, trying to get out in the fresh air and out with other people also helps. Mm-hmm. All great uh, tips and tricks. And, and I don't even want to say tips and tricks because it's such an important like uh, practice. Even the, the aspect of reconnecting to nature for me was such a big part that helped me get out of some lows that I had when I was going through building the business and continuing to build the business. So mm. uh, I really appreciate those uh, the, the advice that you offered. My Easier neck. said than done sometimes. I get that. <laughs> right? Because sometimes you're like, especially when you're a type A or someone who's building something, you see your to-do list and you check, check, check. And sometimes when it comes to your mental health, it doesn't, you don't get the same reward as you would for like sending off that pitch deck or whatever it happens to be. There's like more emotional labor to the, to being well with your mental health than say the to-do lists that actually can sometimes we think keep us motivated. It's true. And I mean, I don't know if you're in Ottawa or where you are, but it's been a tough winter here. So just getting out in fresh air and all of that, it's, it's not as easy as it, as it sounds. Not at all. Uh, my next question for you, you've worked in, inside massive organizations, the Canadian government being that, but you also have a focus on industrial psychology. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Well, to be honest, that whole name, industrial and organizational psychology, it's so clunky and long, (laughs) but really it's all about workplace psychology or business psychology. Mm -hmm. So when you ground it that way, it feels a lot more relevant and practical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in that realm, when we're looking at um, workplaces and dialogues around women in the workplace, what trends have you noticed uh, over your career that have helped improve women's um, satisfaction in the workplace and connection to their workplaces? Well, I love the fact that these days there is more attention being paid to women in non-traditional roles, including women in business. So I'm not sure how it was 10 years ago, but certainly present day and even the past few years, there are certainly events that are geared towards women entrepreneurs, um, all kinds of online communities, this podcast. So these are things that certainly help women in business. And um, one thing that I'm noticing is kind of that parallel between the attention that we're seeing to women in STEM Mm -hmm. and women in business. So the STEM is science, tech, engineering, and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so the parallel is that in both situations, whether it's a woman in STEM or a woman in business, we're always uh, kind of rare. We're in a minority. So there are a lot of complications and sort of layered obstacles that come with that. And so awareness around those things and some supports around those things are just terrific. And what would you advise? I also see your focus on diversity and inclusion in workplaces and and within your work. 
for communities and individuals who are um, potentially marginalized in their workplaces or who feel that subconscious bias and those microaggressions in their day-to-day work, what are some of the supports that you'd suggest or um, resources that could assist in understanding the circumstance that they're in and figuring out how they can advocate for themselves in those spaces or make uh, senior management a little bit more aware of, of their lived experience? So many great questions. And that was a lot of questions. Sorry. It, it, was, it was a lot of questions, but the truth is it's such an important topic and it's so kind of nuanced and multi-leveled. Um, to be perfectly honest, I kind of fell into this area mostly because of my lived experience, but then also because of the experiences of some of my clients. So I'd say that easily 30, 40% of my clients are coming to me because they're dealing with elements related to these circumstances. It could be a woman or a man of color or somebody who's in a religious or gender gender minority or somebody who's feeling a little bit unwelcome on some level at work and trying to find a way to get into a different role or a different organization. And so understanding those things in terms of the implications for a lack of career progression, um, in terms of the mental health toll that it takes when, when you're the only one or kind of compensating in a sense, these are kind of things that I'm just, you know, because I've lived them but wasn't really thinking about them so much, I'm kind of becoming better able to help people navigate some of these issues because of some of the experiences that I've had and how I navigated them, but also how various clients have navigated them with me over the years. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that answers your question, but... <laughs> I, I'd love to get into some of like the tactics or, or tactical advice that you may have offered in those circumstances. Say someone is you know, being, being, feeling that, uh, those microaggressions or those small, you know what it is, like, you know, those nuanced behaviors. I I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to be honest, when somebody is dealing with those things and it's, it's really preventing them from getting ahead in their current organization, as much as I wish we could change organizations, generally speaking, we end up helping the person move into a better organization. Okay. Because it's just too hard to fight against a system that doesn't seem to appreciate or welcome or acknowledge diversity. There's a big difference between talking about diversity versus inclusion, mm-hmm. making people feel welcome and allowing people to be themselves at work. Uh, For instance, I came across a tremendous article a while ago called Covering at Work. And initially I thought, well, covering at at work, isn't that when someone's on holiday? So you're kind of covering for a colleague? Right. Right, but it's actually kind of the opposite. It corresponds with all those times when you may feel unwelcome because you're maybe a person of color or of a different ethnicity or a religious minority or whatever it is that feels unwelcome. So you kind of downplay it when you're at work. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. And apparently when you factor in all the people of color, the LBGTQ community, perhaps First Nations, people with disabilities, 
and white men who may be affiliated with any of the above, it actually turns out that maybe 65% or so are covering things at work. And the bigger issue is that when you're spending all this mental energy covering up these things, that's energy taken away from what you should be spending in terms of creative work, innovation, and productivity. So there's actually a bottom line implication. And so for our listeners who are responsible for their workplace cultures, because we are entrepreneurs, we get to define what our workplaces are like. There mm-hmm. is a bottom line argument. And as someone, as a person of color myself, I hate having to bring it back down to it's in your bottom line best interests for your company to be to prioritize diversity and inclusion and holistic and well workspaces that are open and all of this. But at the same time, for our listeners, because we are in a position of power with creating the cultures in our organizations, it is, in fact, in our best interest Absolutely. to have them be this way from the beginning. And I'm noticing that uh, a lot of the HR literature is saying that going forward, employee engagement isn't going to be enough to keep people. The new paradigm is actually employee fulfillment. And apparently a lot of uh, younger employees and people who have options are expecting some fulfillment at work. And that includes things like feeling welcome and included. So I think we're going to be getting to a point where it's not just a question of the bottom line, but if you want anyone to stick around in your organization who's good and has options, this may become the way it is. So there's two things here I want to clarify. One being that what you shared about how you helped previous clients and transition when they are feeling that um, those biases and feeling unwelcome in their workplace Mm -hmm. to validate to those listeners, if that's you, it's okay to want to leave your job and to find an organization that's better for you. And there are people available um, to help you do that, like Dr. Helen. And Absolutely. That that should be a priority because your mental health and overall well-being and safety is critical. Like it's the it's the most important thing because you spend more time at work than you do in often cases with your family sometimes. And I'd even say that at some point, these um, emotional issues and the stress that it can cause can spill over into a physical wellness. If you're not sleeping at night. If you're really wound up and stressed out, at some point you may end up having issues with your blood pressure, you may have anxiety, you may, there's so many other problems that can become real and uh, problematic if you grind it out too long in a place where you're really just not welcome. And it's so funny how we can, um, like, it's like a phantom pain when you're like, yeah. I need to change these things about myself to be happier in this place. When in fact, the bottom line of it is that it's it's not a safe place. It's not a place where you're going to be welcome. And that truth is okay. And it's unfortunate. It really is. Because who wouldn't prefer an organization and a world where people are able to contribute and these other things just kind of fall by the wayside? Mm-hmm. That would be ideal. That is the ideal that I think we all dream of for that to be the case where our workplaces are open and inclusive and welcoming of the diverse nature of humanity. Um, And I think that that's something that 
we are well positioned as entrepreneurs, as leaders in our organizations, those of us listening to enable and enforce more in the cultures that we exist in and to engage Hmm. with individuals like Dr. Helen and others who are advocates and activists in diversity and inclusion to train up our workplaces to really walk that talk because our mental well-being of our workforce is absolutely critical. End rant. I will not continue on that, but (laughs) I so appreciate your work in this space, Dr. Helen. And I'd love to know, like, when you have helped clients transition from those workplaces to healthier ones, how have you seen them improve overall? I would say that the moment people realize they aren't stuck, they do have other options. As soon as they make that realization and start taking small baby steps towards finding a better way forward, that by itself makes them feel better. Right? Because if you feel like you're doomed, that is exhausting. That is depressing. And it's not just in the private sector. It's not just in the entrepreneurial space. I'd say that I'd say that over the past maybe two or three months in particular, I've actually been engaged more with public servants who have been dealing with these kinds of issues, kind of quietly. But um, there was a symposium held in January where there were about 120 black federal public servants who were gathered to kind of discuss some of these issues. And that was the first time I had seen that number of people talking about the same issues. And I don't think it matters whether it's Blacks or other marginalized groups. It's the same issues of inclusion. But I was I was absolutely floored. That and it's so remarkable and and promising to see that communities are coming together to advocate for their rights within the organizations that they are in. Because mm-hmm. um, that's something that I genuinely believe is uh, it was recent. It, International Women's Day is an example of this, where we rally around an issue or, or, or a topic for a short period of time, and then we we reconvene a year later. But without <laughs> consistent action within our organizations, we can't see forward progress in these areas um, within policy and with actually changing workplace culture. So how do you suggest when you are looking at an organizational level for individuals to help move that dial forward collectively? Well, part of the problem is that when people are dealing with these kinds of issues, whether it's a woman in a non-traditional field or a person of color or another kind of marginalized person, When you're the only one, it's very awkward and uncomfortable to discuss these things. So hopefully you find some way to connect with other people who have a similar experience because it's less isolating and at least you can start the conversation. But when you're the only one, it feels like a real uphill climb. Absolutely. So to pivot the conversation slightly, these Mm -hmm. sentiments of... Um, the the mental stress that can come from not belonging and or not being aligned in the work that you're doing, or it may be not being what you actually want to be doing. Now, this could be people who are in a nine to five and are like, I am meant to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs who realize that maybe I'm not cut out for this. How can they go about 
coming to that realization in a way that serves them and taking the next right step forward to either transitioning to a new org, um, getting back into private sector or taking the leap? Like what, what tangible steps should they take to be well to make that transition or make that call? Now, because I'm a psychologist by training, I kind of prefer making those kinds of decisions based on something objective. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to go uh, to become kind of biased or just make the wrong decision when you're just counting on intuition by itself. So when possible, I love it when people get a chance to get an objective perspective. And what could that look like? Point. Well, um, you know, for myself, I certainly have access to all kinds of standardized tests that give people insights into their real strengths and some of those weaknesses or blind spots so that you can at least see where, you know, what you're like and how that aligns with the goals and the tasks and the priorities in your current role. Because when there's a mismatch, then once you've at least identified that it's a bad fit, Having that same information, you can try to align yourself with something that is a better fit, hopefully within the same organization, or possibly pivoting into something slightly different that is a better fit, whether that means a switch from entrepreneurship back to being an employee, or vice versa, or even some kind of a blend. And if it's not validated in this objective way, um, how do you help your clients realize that, hey, it might, you're actually in a good fit, but it it could be something else in your life? That's a great question because sometimes, you know, just the pressures of having young kids or the pressures of having uh, a lot of organizational change happening at work or some other factor could be kind of clouding your experience of what's going well and what's going poorly at work. So, you know, sometimes it's that question of how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater? You know, maybe there's something that needs to change, but you don't have to throw it all away. And especially when we have other obligations and commitments, I don't like to see people just throw their hands up in the air and say, I'm out of here, I'm quitting. You know, because it's a lot easier to move from something to something else instead of that cold start where you're going from nothing into something. So I like people to be, you know, risk managing a little bit, making some calculated risks, making some careful choices so that they aren't stuck in a worse position when they're in transition. That's such a beautiful piece of advice. And I think critical because when you're in the emotion of it, it can feel all consuming and it can feel like the only way out is out versus subtle changes or these nuanced Mm -hmm. pivots that you would help someone acknowledge. Well, that's it. If I had a nickel for every conversation I've had in terms of uh, either through Magnify or through my normal channels with a phone, people calling me and saying, oh my God, I'm at my wit's end. I'm on the verge of quitting. I always suggest that they try not to just quit in that moment. Take some time. You know, whether it's with me or with somebody else, get some perspective and figure out what exactly is it that's not working, which pieces are working, and try to make a change where you can hold on to the things that are working, perhaps in a new role or a new organization, and try to leave behind the things that are kind of grinding you down. 
Absolutely. Easier, easier said than done, but I've, I've been doing it for a while. And I think one of the things that I'm really grateful for in retrospect is that when I was doing my PhD, it was it was a, a situation where I had to make something up from scratch, create something new. So for 20 years, I've been kind of comfortable figuring something out when there's no clear path forward. So... You know, that's uh, that's my real sweet spot is helping people, whether it's with a career issue or more of an HR issue when it's complicated. Those are my best times. And so what I'm hearing there is two things. One is take more like don't be so reactive in the moment. You can be overwhelmed by emotion, but take time to find a way to engage with someone to objectively look at it and Hmm. and help you through it. And that seems to be the best approach forward and alongside finding comfort in the discomfort of the ambiguity of, of transition and, and of maybe a change needs to happen, but it's going to take us time to figure this out and make it happen. Well, that's it. Kind of like jumping into a pool of cool water, right? You know, like at first it's like, Oh my God, but you know, you kind of acclimatize. And also, I I think that there's some value in those initial reactions where you realize this is just not good. This Mm. is not sustainable. It's good to recognize that and embrace it, but doing it in a smart and tactical way where you're not hurting yourself. Yes. That brings me to this net of one of our final questions for our conversation, which I've so enjoyed. Um, you talked about being well and the impacts of like the psychological stress and how that can impact your physical well-being. Mm-hmm. At what point do people need to like, how can we, how are you, how do you encourage your clients to take their foot off the gas a little bit to ensure that their careers, their, they, they can it, it can be long-term sustainable because I feel like what we're seeing, especially in the entrepreneurship community, is burnout, burnout and hard mm-hmm. burnout. So what can you practically advise our audience to do to kind of pull your foot off that gas a little bit and let's make this more of a long-term sustainable thing? I often use myself as an example because I'm somebody who wants to achieve things. I want to work hard. I want to deliver. But you can't always do every single thing at the same time. So when you have young kids, for instance, you may not be able to do everything career-wise while also being a great parent, right? So, you know, kind of trying to be mindful of the fact that there are many moving parts in life. So when you're having relationship issues or big parenting demands or complicated things happening at work or in your business, sometimes you can't do all of them well at the same time. So trying to find a way to just sort of prioritize and keep enough balls in the air that nothing gets broken. (laughs) Right? You know, just having someone say, you know what, I'm a little older and I've seen a thing or two, it'll be okay. But just, you know, pace yourself a little bit or prioritize which things are you going to take care of first while not ruining anything else. Because I think it's possible to do well in the long term on many levels. It's just really tough to do them all well at the same time. Mm, I appreciate that. And I take it very much to heart. (laughs) And my final question for you is, 
and it's what I ask all of our guests, Dr. Helen, is mm-hmm. what is your final piece of advice for women entrepreneurs to thrive in their lives and their businesses? Well, you know, I think it's smart to always work with your strengths and kind of compensate for your weaknesses or blind spots and doing it while you're being yourself. You know, I always like to use uh, some kind of uh, pop culture analogies. You know, for instance, Beyonce would not be nearly as successful if she was channeling Taylor Swift. (laughs) Right. So stay in your lane, do what you're good at. And uh, really celebrate your strengths. Don't worry about other people's strengths. Worry about your strengths. Fantastic. And what a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Helen. I appreciate your insights so much. And we were so happy to have you here on Thrive. Well, thanks a million. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC and Scotiabank for helping us elevate women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook resources for women entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rivers Corbett. Make sure to visit CoreSpace, K-A-U-R dot space to learn to better integrate work, wellness and impact into your everyday life. Until next time, I'm Gomal Minhas. It's time to thrive.